If you would turn in your Bibles to John 17, John chapter 17, it's found on page 1149. And we will also be reading Lord's Day 8. Lord's Day 8 is found in your prayer, Forms and Prayers book on page 209. As you're turning there, just a few words. This text from John 17 is what's termed Jesus' high priestly prayer. It is a wonderful example of the intercession of Christ, the wonderful prayer that he makes on behalf of his disciples, and even references the church to come, who he, may he praise on behalf of us. We see ourselves even mentioned there. I want to explain that though we will be talking about the Trinity tonight, the, the Holy Spirit doesn't explicitly appear in this text. And we will be referencing other texts that appeal to the Trinity, but I want to explain that what we see here, and I chose this text because what we see here is an outworking and and a practical application of the doctrine of the Trinity. And even though the Holy Spirit is not here explicitly mentioned, he is involved in all the work that is done here. But we will read John 17 as an example of the inner workings of the Trinity and how that comes to play even for us as we read John 17 and Lord's Day 8. Before reading, let us pray. Father in heaven, we come before you to read a prayer that your Son prayed on our behalf and on behalf of his disciples so long ago, and yet one that we can hear even now echoes of in heaven. We know truly, even at this time, such words are spoken on behalf of of us before your throne room, because Christ is there seated. And because of the relationship that he has with you and the Holy Spirit with you in us, we see how they are applied. We see that we are indeed one, one with you and one with each other because of your very nature, your triune nature. We see that we depend on who you are, and and this dependence lies especially on who you are as triune Lord. We confess that we come to matters we can't fully comprehend and understand, but would you open our minds that we would be able to see, even with some measure of clarity, the wonder of who you are. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. John 17, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, thou has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. 
And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be all, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may may be in them, and I in them. Now we will read a summary of what God's Word teaches on the doctrine of the Trinity as well as an explanation of our faith and what we profess faith in in Lord's Day 8. Speaking about the Apostles' Creed, it asks this question, How are these articles divided into three parts? God the Father and our creation, God the Son and our deliverance, and God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. Since there is only one divine being, why do you speak of three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Because that is how God has revealed himself in his word. These three distinct persons are one true, eternal God. People of God, in Kevin DeYoung's commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism, he titles his lesson on Lord's Day 8 this, The Most Important Doctrine You Never Think About. The Most Important Doctrine You Never Think About. I think there is something to that title. I think we could all relate to and understand that this is a very important doctrine, but also one that we may struggle to think about, struggle to to see really the, the importance or the practical importance of. 
Sometimes we are not very mindful of the, the, the trinity, of the triune nature of our God, and we more just speak to Lord, Lord, Lord in that understanding. It's not always wrong, but isn't perhaps the full understanding, isn't perhaps presenting how beautiful and glorious our faith is and what it means that we know and serve a God who is triune, who is one, one being, one substance, but is three persons. Now, it's not always as stated as negatively as the doctrine we never think about. If you look at your life, there are marks of the Trinity all around it. It, it comes up all the time. Think of every time you pray. The most common way of praying and, and beginning a prayer is to say, uh, Our Father in Heaven, or Father in Heaven. And then to end it with, in Jesus' name, in the name of your Son, something like that. And that reflects the Trinity. Even in our prayers, then, we see we are Trinitarian Christians, even in how we speak, which is wonderful. That is how it should be, that our prayers reflect that truth, that he is our Father because we are in the, in the Son. He is our Father in truth, and that we, we bring our requests in the name of the Son. We also see the Trinity every time we experience, see a baptism, or see our children baptized. They are baptized in the name of the triune God, and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Throughout our worship services, there's, there are prayers that ref, reflect the Trinity, and every Sunday we proclaim and profess our faith using the words of creeds that set us apart from all other religions and say, no, we are those who believe in God, the triune God. And so we are those steeped in Trinity, and yet you, you see the point that though these things are structurally with us, we, we aren't very mindful of it at all times. And so we come to the faith that we profess a triune God. That's what we're doing here. That's our first point. The faith that we profess is a triune God. The Catechism is explaining the, the Apostles' Creed. It's going to go through it line by line, word by word, and explain what we mean here. And it's very important that we understand what we profess, why we believe what we do. And it's of, of extreme importance that we understand the Trinity, that we understand the Orthodox faith, that we believe in one being in three persons. You'll notice that the Apostles' Creed does not try to explain God with abstract terminology. It's very concrete. The concepts are, are rooted in what God has done in his deeds. Look at what the Lord's Day says. It's the deeds of God which has formed the confession. It's what it says that he has done and how we know who they are. You see this. God the Father in our creation. That's generally the work that you see applied to the Father. How we see him and his hands at work in creation itself. God the Son and our deliverance. This is how we generally see the Son and, and, and how he appears to us as, it's as a deliverer, as a, a redeemer. And then we see in God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. The Holy Spirit comes to us to apply the work of Christ and to make us holy. We see and know the Lord in, in what he does for us. That's amazing. You see, we don't just need to sit and think, well, what do these, what do these persons do? We, we know them personally. We've experienced it. We could, we could say it as we've experienced their touch, as it were. The Father who created, the Son who delivers, the Spirit who sanctifies. Now, they do far more than that. And the doctrine is far more fulsome than that. But the catechism is expressing what we believe, and it's giving it in clarity and simplicity that we would know it and would not be in doubt of what we believe. 
This doctrine is of extreme importance. Listen to these quotes. I'm going to read some quotes from various theologians that talk about the importance of the Trinity. Dutch theologian Herman Bavink says, Therefore, the article of the Holy Trinity is the heart and core of our confession, the differentiating earmark of our religion, and the praise and comfort of all true believers of Christ. The differentiating earmark the comfort, the praise of all true believers of Christ. That's how important the doctrine is. Kevin DeYoung himself says, if any doctrine makes Christianity Christian, then surely it's the doctrine of the Trinity. That's very true. What makes a Christian a Christian? Well, it's belief in Christ. Okay. What does that mean if it's belief in Christ? That means you must believe in the Trinity because Christ is a member of the Trinity. And to, to bear his name is to be understanding that he is the Son of God himself. He's divine. He's human. He has come. He's saved our sins. All of that funnels down from the doctrine of the Trinity itself. Sinclair Ferguson explains the importance of the Trinity in this way. He says, When Jesus' disciples were about to have the world collapse in on them, our Lord spent so much time in the upper room speaking to them about the mystery of the Trinity. If anything could underline the necessity of of Trinitarianism for practical Christianity, that must surely be it. Ferguson's point, and you can see it in John here, if you were to to scroll back a few chapters in John from chapter 17, you would see all of these speeches, sermons that the Lord is making to his disciples that revolve around himself and the Father and the Spirit, and it's the Trinity's dripping from every page. And what Ferguson is saying is, as they're about to lose the Son... As Jesus is about to die, what does he spend so much time revealing to them and speaking to them about? Well, it's the Trinity. And we saw portions of that in in chapter 17, all of that inner working. I am in the Father, and the Father are, I and the Father are one, and I'm in them. And when you're in me, you're in him, and all of these things. And it's meant to comfort the disciples. That they would hear this prayer and know that in Christ, they, they are free with the Father. That they stand before him, washed in Christ. That they are one with the Father and one with each other. And even as he's about to leave them, what he is explaining in this whole section is that he isn't leaving them alone. He will send his helper. That's earlier in John. The Holy Spirit will come upon them and be with them. All of this is meant to comfort them as he is saying, I'm about to depart. I'm about to die. How important is the Trinity for us? It is so important, I think, at times we we miss just how everything hangs on it. Our relationship to the Father, redemption, how we're saved, all of that is, is coming from the Trinity itself. Stated simply enough, the triune God facilitates creation and redemption. For salvation to occur, God must send a mediator between himself and fallen humanity. This mediator and intercessor must be true God and true man. The Messiah would need to be anointed with the divine spirit of God. God would have to send the divine spirit to unite the sinner to the Redeemer. This would require a divine spirit of the same substance with the Father and the Son. The Father who sent the Son, the Son came, the Spirit proceeds from them both to us. To say that these three persons were separate gods would destroy everything. Because when the Spirit joins us to Christ, we, through Christ, come to the Father. 
which requires that they are and would be of the same substance, and the Spirit who he would send would be of the same substance with them. Without this, salvation can't happen. Ephesians 2.18 says, For through Christ we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. For through Christ we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. That's the Trinity and the inner workings of the Trinity that enables our redemption. Ephesians 2.22 In Christ you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Notice again the Trinity in Christ, so it's through Him, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God. There's the Father by the Spirit who is performing this in us. To explain just how practical this doctrine is, Look at verse 3 of John 17. And this is eternal life. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is to know God as the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. That's how practical it is. And if we don't understand that, we don't worship the true Lord. If we don't understand who he is, then we worship someone who is false. And if we don't understand properly the doctrine of the Trinity, all our theology will be, will be incorrect, will be wrong. It will prove that we have misunderstood, that we don't understand God's word right. And in fact, almost every misunderstanding later and, and down the pages of God's word will find themselves in the Trinity itself where there's a misunderstanding there. To misunderstand something about the Trinity means that there's a whole web of issues that comes from that. And you'll misunderstand the gospel itself. That's why the Athanasian Creed says, Now this is the Catholic faith, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding their persons nor dividing the essence for the person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. When we speak of them as, as one essence, one substance, what we're trying to do is speak of, what shall we say, what is Godness? Godness, divinity, what, what is what we're, what, what we're describing, who he is, what comprises God. Now, saying it even that way is incorrect. God isn't made up of parts. But as humans, we try to seek to understand who is God, and what we see is the substance of God, who he is, as we term it in his attributes. All the members of the Trinity, those three persons, have the same. They're equal. They have the same substance. And so they all are eternal. They all are incomprehensible. They are all are invisible, unchangeable, infinite, almighty, completely wise, just, and good, and the overflowing source of all good. And that's what it means, and that's what we need. Without this, salvation doesn't occur. Without this, the Bible doesn't make sense. But because of God himself and his nature, now everything does make sense, and the Bible does make sense. We believe this because this is what the Bible teaches. And that's our second point, scriptural basis for this triune profession. Why do we believe it? What's the scriptural basis for it? The Catechism is quite wise in how it presents this doctrine. It gives us what we must profess. And what we must profess is one true eternal God, yet three distinct persons. And that we can profess faith in this simple statement. 
That's wise that the Catechism presents it that way. But the Catechism is also wise in presenting it not as an argument, not as logical reasoning, but why do we hold to this? Why do we believe it? It's because that's how God has revealed himself in his word. And we see that. And we're going to go through briefly and trace our understanding of the Trinity. Why is it important? Why is it important? See, we have to ask that question. Many of us might think, well, we believe in the Trinity. Why is it important to trace the doctrine? Well, it's important, one, so that we are able to understand how it's built. The word Trinity isn't in the Bible. You could read from cover to cover, and you will not find that word present. Trinity doesn't exist there. And so we have to explain why we believe this. And if it's so fundamental, we should explain how we get there. So it's, it's important we study it for our own knowledge. It's important that we regularly put this before us, not only that it enriches our prayer life, not only that it enriches our understanding of the gospel, but that we would always be ready and able to defend our beliefs. You know, if someone were to ask you, well, why do you believe that God is triune? That word's not in the Bible. It's helpful that we go through this to understand the foundations of the faith, why we believe it. We see that God first, in the, various, the, the very beginning of Scripture, revealed that he is God who is one. That was some of the very first revelation to the people of God, that the Lord your God is one God. Monotheism. And so what was first presented in Scripture, in contrast to all the diversity of religions out there that believed in multiple gods, God came and said, no, there is one God. And so Scripture presents that first, the unity of God. And throughout the Old Testament, that what, that's what's primary, the unity of God himself. Historically, God began to reveal himself, establishing that as his, that first truth. Now, did the Old Testament saint believe in the Trinity? If not, how could they be saved? If we make it a matter of salvation now, what about then? Well, first, it's not, it's not fully understanding the issue. It's not the same thing to say that someone didn't have a full knowledge of something versus someone denied a truth. You see, the Old Testament saint believed in God in the capacity that was available to them. They may not have understood the Trinity in its fullness, certainly not. And yet God had revealed to them enough of himself that was true revelation of who he was, and they believed in God and the capacity that they had at that time, but it would deepen. And so they didn't deny the Trinity. We can't even speak in those terms. This is a doctrine that developed through hundreds of years and far more revelation. We can't judge an Old Testament saying off of what they did not have. Yet they believed in God. It's sort of like, think of uh, your relationship in your families, maybe husband and wife. The relationship when you're dating your future spouse is one in which at every point along the way you know them. You do know who they are. It's not as if you're denying something true about them. And at every step along the way, it's not as if you really believe, I really don't know this person. You do. And yet, if you were to compare yourself years and years into marriage between then and when you were first dating, you would see my, my knowledge of my spouse is so much greater. That doesn't deny that you truly knew them when you got married. It just means that you know them far better now. And that's what's true of Christianity itself. We know God far better now. But it doesn't mean that the Old Testament saint denied the truth of the Trinity the Old Testament actually bears the marks of the Trinity, though it would take later revelation to reveal that. 
There were seed form distinctions of the Trinity. There was distinctions in the Old Testament of word and spirit, of wisdom and power. The mystery of diversity in the, in the middle of that unity. You see that especially in redemption and with the angel of the covenant or the angel of the Lord. There are multiple texts in which this angel and messenger of the Lord is at the same time distinguished from God and yet then in the next verses will be sort of joined to God and you wonder who's the, who are they talking about. Well, those are marks of the Trinity. You see marks of the Trinity in creation itself. In the God who speaks in the spirit that hovers, we see that in the way they describe, let us make man in our image. So there are, there are imprints of the Trinity even in the Old Testament, but not enough to fully define that doctrine. And then you see other things. You see the promises of Christ who would come, and in that promise, you see, you see these, again, this, this diversity from the Father, and yet equality with the Father, and joining with the Father. You see one who is promised to come, Emmanuel, God with us. You see, he's going to be a suffering servant, and he's going to be the second Moses. He's going to be the, the greater Melchizedek of a, the greater priesthood, an eternal priesthood, reigning on David's throne. And yet he'll bear the name God with us. He'll bear the name Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. These things surely were what Old Testament saints pondered over and found mysterious and didn't fully know how to answer. And yet now we know this is the Trinity and marks of the Trinity before us. We see in Scripture how clear the Trinity is built. All of this shows that there was the unity of God firmly presented, and then we see the diversity explained. We see verses that speak of God's oneness, but then we see so many passages that demonstrate that God is Father. John 6.27, Titus 1.4. Verses like those that show God is indeed Father. And then many texts that prove that God is, that Jesus is God himself. John 1, the word was God. John 8, 58, Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am. Colossians 2, 9, in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Hebrews 1, 3, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his being. Titus 2, 13, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I read that one fast. I'm going to slow that one down. Titus 2, 13. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now this might come in handy when you, the doorbell rings and there's a knock on the door and someone comes to you and says, Now where are you going when you die? And do you believe in God? And do you believe that Jesus was his prophet that he sent that was a, a, an amazing creation? Maybe we could even call him God in a lowercase g sense. You see... Knowing these texts, understanding it helps us to say, you deny the very, very, God's very word. You deny the gospel. You have robbed the Son of God himself of his title, of his power, of his authority. You don't understand God. That's why we must know this. We see similar texts as well about the Holy Spirit. Similar texts that call the Spirit eternal spirit. That's an attribute that only God possesses that ascribes personality to the Spirit. We call him the Holy Spirit is a, is a he, it's not an it. God's Word refers to him as a person, acting, choosing to act. One who would come is what Christ says. Acts 5, 3, and 4, the Holy Spirit is used interchangeably with God himself. This is how the doctrine of the Trinity is built. So no, the word isn't there, but you see all these texts that mean it must be so. There's no other conclusion. 
that we believe in one God, not three gods, one God, one substance, one being, but who exists in three persons, three separate persons. We cannot fully understand that great mystery, and yet it's the very mystery that saves our life. It's upon what we hold, and that's where we come to our our final point. Why does the doctrine of the Trinity matter? We've been talking about it this whole time, but let's, let's answer that more explicitly. Why does it matter? The confession of the Trinity is the sum of the Christian religion. Without it, creation, redemption, and sanctification can't be upheld. They don't work. Every departure from this doctrine leads to error. As one pastor said, and this is why the doctrine really matters to us, to you sitting there, this pastor said, one word summarizes the catechism's understanding of the Trinity. One word. One word summarizes the catechism's understanding of the Trinity. Comfort. Comfort. And you might be sitting there thinking, well, how? How's that? Notice how the catechism answers that. God the Father and what? Our creation. God the Son and our deliverance. God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. It's all personal. It is our comfort. It's that God, as you can even further personalize it, God is your creator. God the Father is your creator. God the Son is the one who secures your salvation. God the Holy Spirit is the one who lives and dwells in you. And because the Spirit dwells in you, you are in Christ, and Christ is in God. Christ is God. And you are then one with Christ. You're brought to the Father. Comforting. It's comforting to know that the, the Trinity has imprints its mark on redemption itself in such a way that comforts us. It's all for us. It's all this personal revelation and, and understanding what he's done. But I also want to look at John 17 briefly here and see why the doctrine of the Trinity matters. If you would have your Bibles open to John 17, I want you to look at these verses as I reference them to see just... And this is only a, a handful of what we could would pull from John 17 and see in the glorious example of what the Trinity and what Christ and his high priestly prayer means to us. You would notice in verses 2 through 3, the doctrine of the Trinity means the second person could assume our nature, present us to the Father, and give us, as the text says, eternal life. We've gone through the Lord's days that explain that. We needed a divine mediator, and the only one who could be our divine mediator was the Son, And the Father couldn't do that. The Father needed the one to be be appeased. The Father, justice and his wrath, was the one that needed to be settled. And because the Father loved his people who he chose, sends the Son. And the Son who loves the Father and loves his people is willing to be sent, but only the Son could do that. If there, were, wasn't, if there weren't three members, three persons of the Trinity, you would have one God, one person. And it would be very confusing as to how he could be the one to bring, to bring an appeasement of his wrath when he could be the judge and the one dying and suffering and do all these things unless it was the fact that the, the divine being is one of three persons who are of the same substance and one being and yet interact as these persons. 
and bring us so eternal life. Eternal life doesn't come to us without this. Look at verses 6 and 7. Because of the doctrine of the Trinity, the Son can come and reveal the Father to us, as it says, manifest his name to his people. We could not know the Father were it not for the Son. What does Jesus say? You have seen me, and so you've seen the Father. We understand divinity itself because the Son came. And if he was a mere creature, he could not reveal that. But because he is God, he reveals God. We not, not, we not only know God, we are God's. We are God's chosen possession because the Father gives us to the Son, and the Son in turn redeems us and presents us to the Father. We're God's own possession. Look at verses 9 through 11 and verses 21 and 22. Here you see all the references about being one, being unified, being joined together, one with Christ, one with the Father. Because of the doctrine of the Trinity, we are one with Christ and thus one with the Father, and so one with one another, as you see there. It enables, it enables the understanding of the Catholic nature of the Church, the universality of the Church. Because of the doctrine of the Trinity, we are joined far more than just membership. We're joined far more than just in name. We are together here, one body in Christ, brothers and sisters of that one body, joined together, unified, of one mind in Christ. And that's all enabled because of the doctrine of the Trinity. The universality of the church can't exist without that understanding, without that truth. Look at verse 14. The doctrine of the Trinity means you truly don't belong to this world because we are in Christ and Christ doesn't belong to this world. He's the divine Son of God. That's who the Son is. And we belong in Him. And so this world is not our home. We aren't of the world we are outside of it. We belong to heaven because that's where the Son belongs. Verse 26, the doctrine of the Trinity actually makes God's love possible. There would be no love of God. And this, this is a deeper point, but I want us to see it. It's beautiful. Because of the triune nature of God, he is able to be a God of love. Love demands that you are showing love to someone else. You cannot be an eternal God of love if you are the only person. What it would then mean is it would require you to create someone else so that you could be a God of love. And you would not be a God of love until that other person was created, until there was another being. Because our God is the triune Lord, Existing as one being in three persons, he can be an eternal God of love, as they, in the members and the inner workings of the Trinity, bear that love towards one another. And so creation isn't fixing something deficient in God. Rather, he's able to take what's eternally true about himself and apply it to his creation, which can't be if he was merely one person, that's, that's, the dan that's the one of many of the problems with Islam and Allah. Radically one, radically unified, radical monotheism to the point that there is only one person, and that means that person, that divine being, can't be one that is loving. 
It's a deficient Lord. It's not real. This high priestly prayer gives us so much. It's astonishing as you read it, and you see it's just dripping with that understanding. Christ, in the same breath, speaks of who he is here as a man on earth, and then talks about how he belongs in heaven. Glorify me with the glory I had before I came. And then what's astonishing is he says, and let us, you and me, share in that glory. It's the Trinity that makes that possible. This is our salvation. This is where our doctrine hangs on the very being of our God. Let's go to that Lord in prayer and praise his great name. O Lord, our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. O Father and our Father, we come before you as your children. We understand that we are your children as a result of us being in your Son. And we know, Lord Jesus, that you have saved us of our sins. And all of this was applied by you, our Lord, our, our God, through your Spirit. And Holy Spirit, we know that you dwell in us. You unite us. Unite us to each other. You join us to the Son and to the Father. We share in the Son's glory by your indwelling. Lord Jesus, you've achieved this glory not only for yourself, but to be able to dispense it and give it to your people. All because you are bringing us back to the Father, and the Father, you love us, for you so love the world that you sent your Son. We praise you for who you are. We need not say any more than that. We can set the brightest of human minds to ponder who you are, and we find ourselves in complete and utter amazement. We thank you to us simple-minded people, revealing truths so far beyond what the wise of the world could know. And we praise you for who you are. In Jesus' name, 